This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier Dumablet. And I'm Yannick Mignan. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? The Xcode Cliff. Ooh. But before we start, I think you have some follow-up. Well, not really some follow-up, but I do want to plug two podcasts I was on. Okay, then let me correct that. Let me correct that. Some two shame, shameless plugs, then. Yeah, two shameless plugs for uh, two episodes of the selectbutton.net podcast I was on. Uh, we recorded two episodes about the Monster Hunter series. Uh, we tried to get them out in a reasonable uh, delay following the release of Monster Hunter World, and we had a bunch of technical problems, which ended up leading it uh, maybe like two or three months later than we would have liked. But anyway, the, the episodes are out, so we have a low-rank episode for people... Uh, well, actually, there, there's no relation with the low-rank and the high-rank episodes and what we actually talk on the episodes. Uh, so if you are a fan of the Monster Hunter series... Uh, go listen to both of those. If you're not a fan of the Monster Hunter series, you're probably not going to have much to gain from listening to those episodes aside from our enthusiasm for the series uh, in general. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. Good. So then let's move to your topic about some kind of cliff in Xcode. Right. So this episode is going to be a response slash critique of an article by Paul Miller on The Verge called The Xcode Cliff, which is about Apple's approach to teaching Swift and Swift Playgrounds on the iPad. Uh, if you haven't read it, I would greatly recommend reading it before moving on in this episode. I'm going to try to summarize Paul's arguments when necessary, but this episode is meant to be additive to the original piece, not a substitute for it. And the basic premise of this article is that what Apple teaches through the Swift Playgrounds app is not representative of what actually developing on the Mac or iOS is like, and therefore boxes in people who learn via that app into a subset of the platform's functionality that is ultimately unhelpful for accomplishing things in the real world. And one of the underlying themes of this is, until Apple gives us a full version of Xcode on the iPad, the originality of young developers can't blossom on the iPad because their tools are too limited. Um... I should point out ahead of time that I am generally not a fan of Paul's writing. Uh, I find that a lot of his pieces are badly researched or about topics he doesn't seem to know much about. Uh, but it just so happens that this specific piece of badly researched complaining is something that I also <laughs> care to complain about. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be a good show this week. The wow. bitch fest has already started. And let's oh, start wow, with wow. point number one. So whoa, this... whoa, whoa. That's, oh, be, before you continue, I think you remember in last week when I was mentioning that you didn't bitch enough? I think you took all of that energy and you saved it for this week. Mm, maybe. All right. So uh, here's point number one of Paul's stuff. Uh, Swift Playgrounds presents an idealized version of coding which hides all complexity from the user. You can complete an exercise that has a flashy AR kit visualization as a result, but none of that code or knowledge is directly transferable to use to develop real AR kit applications. So the first point of my uh, response to this is it's only partially true. So Swift Playgrounds consists of two parts, the included coursework and the underlying development environment. And Paul's point is only really true if you consider Swift Playgrounds to be defined by its coursework, uh, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. However, it's actually shocking to me how few limitations are in place in the Swift Playgrounds development environment, and experienced developers can use it to write real code in just about any framework publicly available to real-deal iOS developers and interact with it just as you would in, a, in the real version of Xcode. And I would like to mention regarding that, that I'm using... That 
rarely these days, but uh, for big feature that we wanted to implement in the app, sometimes when you want to just try something and make sure it works or try a new API on iOS, Swift Playgrounds are a nice playground for that exactly because everything is accessible and then if you can write code in there, usually it then gets migrated to real Swift file in a real project. Yeah, definitely. There are a few limitations. Swift Playgrounds doesn't allow you to package your code as an application or use a debugger, although I should point out that the Playgrounds format is generally much friendlier than a regular source code file for debugging already. But otherwise, it's an uncompromised development environment for all of the standard system libraries on iOS. And a good example for this is uh, last year we did an episode following WDC where we were summing up some sessions, and one of the sessions that I had watched was the Metal session, and I opened up a Swift Playground and was able to write my own Metal rendering context and see my code changes be reflected in real time. And Metal is one of the lowest level APIs you can have on iOS, so it is pretty telling of how unfettered that development environment is. Uh, so following that, what is the objective of the Swift Playground's coursework, and how does it accomplish that objective? So Swift Playgrounds is ultimately targeting uh, teaching the fundamentals of programming to children in K-12 education. Early programmers tend to be much more excited by immediate visual feedback, so Apple uses a bunch of different kinds of flashy output to keep them engaged. So there are 2D and 3D game worlds that are powered by SpriteKit and SceneKit, and most recently they added uh, ARKit-powered augmented reality worlds to Swift Playgrounds. However, teaching kids to use SpriteKit, SceneKit, or ARKit directly would be greatly detrimental to their learning process, because those frameworks assume a ton of general programming and even domain-specific knowledge that those kids don't have yet. The coursework is really focusing on basic things like conditionals, variables, arrays, and the notion of registering event handlers to listen to events. So it is way too early for them to actually be confronted with the realities of using ARKit and understanding the relationships between Apple's graphics APIs, which is going to be necessary for them to instantiate an AR session by themselves. Like, you don't want to bore them with that shit. You just want them to see an elephant pop out of a table. And there's another advantage in not using those uh, frameworks directly, and that is in not using the underlying frameworks directly, you're teaching kids about layers of abstraction. All of software development is built on top of layers of abstraction, and with each layer reducing complexity to the appropriate level necessary for the, for the context in which you're using it. So what is a fairer way to represent Paul's big complaint about Swift Playgrounds? Well, Swift Playgrounds, as I said, it's intended to be an interactive textbook for K-12 children learning basic concepts about programming, and it was never meant for, I have a problem to solve, nothing exists to solve that problem on the App Store, so I'm going to read this coursework in order to write my own solution myself. This is basically what Paul seems to fantasize about in this post, and it's fine to fantasize about that, but that is not what Swift Playgrounds is trying to solve. What Swift Playgrounds is trying to do in the modern day is what Logo Writer tried to do on the Apple II back when I was in elementary school. Now, you probably don't know about LogoWriter if you are... Know. Yeah, okay, so I'm just going to summarize this. LogoWriter was a visual programming environment uh, for the Logo programming language released on the Apple II and some DOS computers, and it was a Lisp dialect that allowed you to draw graphics using a turtle cursor that was controlled entirely via code. And for some reason, we had a whole bunch of Apple IIs from kindergarten to fourth grade at Chewinigan High School, and therefore, I spent those five years in Logo Writer, drawing a bunch of crazy graphics, uh, and it was a visual way to learn code. 
Now, all of this coursework, no promise is ever made to you that someone completing this coursework is going to be realistically be able to make anything concrete on the Mac or iOS. And in fact, you probably couldn't do anything concrete on those platforms. So a better argument that Paul could have made is that there should be a second level of coursework that is meant to bridge the gap between I know the fundamentals of programming and I am interested in writing real code for the iOS platform that slowly peels back the abstraction layers that are used throughout the original coursework. Now, this wouldn't change the underlying limitation that Swift Playgrounds can't actually make an app in itself, but it would have the advantage that all of the knowledge that you learn through the bridging coursework could be directly transferable to making apps in Xcode. And in the in inevitable future where Xcode actually comes out on the iPad, fingers crossed, uh, yes, fingers that crossed. won't be a problem. Uh, it would also be pretty awesome if every major OS release was accompanied by a Swift Playgrounds update and Playground-based textbooks existed for every major framework on iOS, applying the same interactive teaching approach to more practical things. This is the fantasy we all had when we saw uh, Swift Playgrounds in Xcode in the first place, and then on the iPad, was think of the ways you could do interactive documentation for various frameworks, and basically almost nothing got that interactive documentation since then. So before I move on to the next point, do you have anything to add on this? No, that no, all makes uh, total sense. Okay, now we get into the part where I know you have some things to say, and I think this is probably going to be the most controversial part of the episode, so I'm, I'm going to straight up say that my opinions are my own opinions and not representative of Ducati Views necessarily, and I will let him <laughs> express himself. Oh, wow. Because I don't want to incriminate him in my crimes against humanity. Oh my goodness, what are you about to say? <laughs> I, I'm surprised that you wanted me to say, oh, uh, now I'm starting to understand why you wanted me to confirm, like, oh, is everything that I just said okay? Uh, I think that, okay, we'll see. I'll let you do stupid shit in the next following minutes. Okay, so the next section is the distinction between, quote, learning and, quote, doing. In the context of this article, quote, learning is about abstract notions and, quote, doing is about concrete, I am working towards a goal development. Do you think that's a fair representation of what he says in the article? Yeah, yeah. I think we discussed it a bit before starting to record that the doing part is like, I want to do something new. Like if, if I were to take a personal example, like, oh, I have a car, I love cars. Maybe I want to do mechanics to maybe save on costs, right? So I would like to learn mechanics or do my oil change to save on costs. So that was is kind of a justification of doing it learning by doing something you have an end goal not just learning for the sake of learning new stuff yeah um so compared to other programming environments swift and apple platforms have a very high learning curve before you're able to quote do anything practical outside of swift playground sandbox and before we move on i need to take some time on this stupid example which is comparing it to javascript he does this in the article I knew you wouldn't like that. I was like, I see the point he's trying to make, but the JavaScript comparison will make people just like, oh, you're there comparing There are a lot Swift of stuff. asterisks to what he says about JavaScript, and we will go through them very briefly, and then I will have another thing about it at the end, because that's how much of a dick I am. So <laughs> we're going to start off with... Uh, no tooling is required. Anyone can use an, a web browser to write and learn JavaScript. This is mostly kind of true. We will have an asterisk, and we will return to that at the end of the episode. Free to distribute to anyone. Kind of. Uh, I guess a fair representation of what he actually means to say about uh, distributing JavaScript codes is that there's no gatekeepers to JavaScript code. Uh, 
it's technically not necessarily free to distribute to anyone because there are hosting costs, and while they are negligible, they're strictly not free. But again, that's a big nitpicking here. Once you've learned the basic concepts of programming in JavaScript, asterisk, there's much less work you need to do before you're able to write things that are practical day-to-day in JavaScript. However, why is that true? Well, it's only true because the scope of what each language is used for is wildly different. Swift was made from uh, made to scale from writing basic automation scripts all the way to being a high-performance systems language that can eventually be used someday to re-implement p- parts of iOS and macOS. The primary task for which JavaScript is used regularly is manipulating the DOM and client-side web applications. And this is generally the way that people learn, by modifying attributes on various uh, HTML tags dynamically on the web page. And while there are many more JavaScript use cases that exist due to the plague of Node.js, the biggest use case is incredibly narrow. The subset of the language that is used for this use case is incredibly narrow, meaning you need to know barely anything about programming itself to actually be able to manipulate the front uh, the front ends of web pages effectively. And as we've covered on episode 77, uh, most people are interfacing with libraries like jQuery to manipulate the NOM anyway, so you don't even really need to learn JavaScript, because most people just write one line of jQuery that does everything for them instead. And the fact that so much of what we do as web developers every day fits in such a narrow scope is damning of the fact that the web was never conceived as a method to develop applications. It was made as a method of transmitting hypertext documents. And because of that, we have very few tools and we need to abuse the hell out of them to get anything done on the internet. And that means that JavaScript's approachability is purely an accident that is slowly being course-corrected over time as people try to make web development better for developing large-scale applications with tooling and new frameworks. Okay, now that we've done this little tangent on JavaScript, we can get back to learning versus doing at large. So this is something that we have pretty strong opinions about because we have been in the higher education system with regards to learning how to program. Uh, and I feel like unlike a lot of careers, there tends to be a lot of imbalance when, with regards to the starting point, when people uh, come to higher education to learn how to program. People who are brand new to software development tend to be super irritated at how the curriculum is front-loaded with a bunch of theoretical notions without any concrete goals. And this sounds similar to what Paul seems to express in his post. And then there are... And it sounds similar to some of the complaints you and I both said during studying programming. Just saying. Well, we'll get there. Yeah, I know. People who have been coding since they're kids feel like they're wasting their time because instead of learning practical things that would benefit them day to day, they are sitting in a lecture being bored by theoretical concepts that they learned ages ago. So that that is sort of the camp that I fell in, is that there was very little I was actually learning. I was just hearing things repeated to me that I learned years or months ago, depending on what the notion was. And that time was basically completely wasted. There was no point in even going to class. We did it because we had to. We had a certain limit of how much absences we could get. Um, and generally, like it wasn't a challenge to pass those classes. And I think there's a huge challenge in building an educational program that can handle one group without alienating the other. There are two completely different 
groups of people to try to teach things. And oftentimes one group is lacking certain skills that is that there's so much inertia to teach them at that point in their life. And this leads me to what I call the lament of the cookbook developer, which is what Paul has in this uh, post. So cookbooks, for those who are unaware, they're a series of books that contain hundreds of pages of sample code examples for uh, programming languages and their standard libraries that help experienced programmers get acquainted quickly with getting common tasks done in a programming environment that they're less familiar with. And generally, what I call a cookbook developer casts aside this notion of theory of programming because it isn't practical enough for them. However, they, they never actually acquired those notions. They usually start with a project in mind and piece together enough bits of sample code to get something to work, but they critically lack one or two things. The ability to explain what their code does and or the curiosity to actually go back and learn why their code does what it does, and the ability to problem-solve and debug anything that isn't completely blatant and in your face. Yeah, I think I'll make a stupid generalization. I think the best way to describe it is one of those fake O'Reilly books that is really like called O'Reilly, and one of them was like how to copy code from Stack Overflow. Yeah, and that is a way that a lot of people actually get their job done from day to day, which is actually sort of terrifying. And at a certain point, like, we need to make a distinction here between people who have the skills and people who don't. And I don't mean the skills of being a programmer because you're learning to be a programmer, right? But, like, there's always this sort of sense of injustice, which is like, why can't the world cater to me? Why can't cookbook developers be the way you learn how to program? And that's because... Part one, and again, this is this is the part that I said was going to be controversial. Catering to you will produce more bad developers. You can get a job by being purely a cookbook developer, as we said, but sooner or later you become a liability for your team and reliant on other team members to bail you out when you can't figure out how, why your shit is not working. And then there's the other one, which is even more controversial than what I just said, which is if you had the problem-solving skills and the curiosity expected out of programmers, you would have figured it out by yourself. Because that is what our job as programmers is. And if you don't have the underlying problem-solving skills and the curiosity that is going to push you to learn that shit by yourself, you're doomed for failure in this industry anyway. And the analogy I want to make is pretty much anyone can cook by following the recipe or even cook multiple recipes and put them onto the same plate. Like, that is a baseline level that many people are expected to have to be working adults. And then you have... Not everyone can look at a recipe and t tell you what each of the ingredients brings to that recipe or the impacts of changing or adding ingredients to that recipe will cause to the end result of that recipe within a reasonable level of accuracy. However, if you're trying to be a fucking chef, hope you have that set of skills, otherwise you're not going to be a very good chef. And that is sort of where I come down on the programming thing. And it's just super unfortunate that a lot of the excuses that I'm listing here are also generally also used to exclude entire classes of people from trying to become programmers for bullshit discriminatory reasons. Like, I think these reasons are true. I think, unfortunately, their arguments have been weakened because they have been used for sexist or racist reasons throughout the industry over the years, and now nobody actually wants to hear these things. They just want to hear, no, you're being sexist or racist towards this person. Now do you see why I try to uh, distance you from my statements? Wow, I'm, I'm kind of speechless to be honest. Why is that? I do feel 
I do f- understand a bit what you're trying to describe here, especially with your analogy of like food making. But still, I do think that problem solving in general is a skill you can learn. You can be bad at it and learn how to be good at it. I think what you're kind of describing is there is kind of an inherent like personality threat or just a threat that people have and you are good at this or you're bad at this. And I think that's where you're kind of losing me. Okay, well, let me put this in this perspective. Like, there is a certain profile of people that actually tend to go into programming. Like, you tend to see a lot of gamers, whether it's video gamers or tabletop gamers or card gamers. And what do games generally have? Well, they have a system of rules, and you generally have gamers which are trying to abuse the system of rules or trying to optimize a certain variable. That's basically algebra or problem solving. And algebra and problem solving, if you've been doing it since you were, like, five years old playing video games is a skill that is going to benefit you if you eventually become a developer. Whereas if you never played video games, you don't have that problem-solving base. And maybe you will have gotten it from some other thing that is not a video game that I am not thinking of right now. Of course you can get it elsewhere. But the other thing is, let's say you have zero problem-solving, and you show up at college and you say, I want to be a programmer. First of all, you're no longer a kid, so there is more inertia in getting you to learn things in general. Like, that's just brain science. How are you going to catch up on all of those years that those other kids were doing problem solving? I don't think, like, Apple's everyone can code thing is necessarily true. I don't think everyone wants to be a developer. And I don't think everyone is necessarily going to be able to become a developer. But I think you should allow kids to get the problem solving skills as early as possible. Like, if you look at uh, the curriculum that I had in math class in English school... I don't know how common this is in French class, but they were showing us chess in math class for, like, it was a notable part of the curriculum until sixth grade, I believe. Did you guys Hmm. have chess in math class? In sixth grade? To be honest, all of my elementary school is so vague to me that I wouldn't be able to say yes or no. But I will tend to say no, because that's... Maybe maybe I don't... All all of this is say that I don't remember, to be honest. Because, like, chess is another way of, like, here is a game where you need to problem-solve. We have deemed that the skills that this game can teach you are important enough to put in the curriculum. I don't know. You can do those kinds of things, but at a certain point, it sort of becomes too late to catch up on the debt that you have of problem-solving skills that you didn't have for the rest of your life. And I think, like, many things are like that. And I think it's sort of like skill points in goddamn Persona, right? At a certain point, like you reach a point in your life where you can't go back and put those skill points in other skills, except generally you aren't really in charge of where you put your skill points as a kid. You sort of have it implicitly happen to you via the culture you're in, whether it's the influence of your parents or the influence of the education system you're in and all of that stuff. But I think pretending that like the skill point system doesn't exist in your life is just like giving people false hope for what they can do in their life. Okay, I I see the angle you're trying to make here. That makes sense. And I think think if we were to be a bit more broad about, like, problem solving as a skill, I think right now, like, since it is a required skill to do programming, the way I see it is by 
I guess, teaching programming in schools, I think the result outcome is not, oh, you learn something about programming, but more some, more on the likes of saying, you learn how to solve different problems that in those cases apply to programming. But in general, you learn the steps at of problem solving and the way you learn them was programming. Yeah, it's the same Those thing same as my chess that I was talking about, right? Yes. I learned yeah, yeah, yeah. the rules of chess and there were problems in our math exams that were like, figure out how to get out of this sticky situation in chess. And it's like, please resolve the system of rules and equations that leads you to actually get to the correct move to get out of this pinch. And that is problem solving. And again, like by having that on the curriculum, you increase the chances that people's quote life skill points are going to go towards problem solving and then increase the possibility of success if they choose to go into programming later. However, I like, I think if you don't have the skill points to begin with in, uh, in problem solving, good luck catching up. Okay. Okay. Then I understand your point. I think it's an unpopular opinion to have because people want to think that even if you're like 50 years old, you can learn something completely new and turn your life. And I think there's always the possibility. I mean, nothing is impossible. You can always do it if you are super determined to do it, probably. But I think there is so much inertia, especially the later you get in life, that it's better to start banking up those skill points earlier in your life so that then when you become at an age where you actually choose where you allocate those skill points, again, everything comes back to fucking persona. Uh, I, I think, I'll be honest, I think I do have a more nuanced approach that I think the part I do agree with you is at some point, some people are better than others, like, and... There's a lot of bias around that. And I think we need to be aware of that. Like, there, it's easy to say that I'm better at this because it's assumed to, for me by biases that I should be better. But that's not where I want to go. I think what I mean by, I think I believe in a more grayish zone compared to your kind of black and white uh, thinking right now is that, yes, you can learn even if you might have more difficulty because of the way you are, whatever, but if your end goal is to be a specialist in the skill you want to learn, that might set you up for failure. If you just want to learn something and just be good enough and that's your goal, that's totally fine. And I think if that's your, that's the, what is the goal you have in mind? I think anybody can learn any skill and just learn the appropriate skills to make sure that they are successful into that. If the goal is to say like, I learned it. I can do stuff that might be not perfect, that might not be good enough for other people, but at least it's good enough for me. Right. And like we were talking about like having a goal and working towards a project, right? You can be a hobbyist programmer and have a goal and work towards your project. And you might lack all of the stuff that I was talking about earlier with regards to being able to debug and all that stuff. But for your needs, you've actually met your project, your goal that you wanted and it works for you, so that's fine. And I agree with that. The danger is when we get into professional environments where we disagree about where the line for good enough is. And some people think that they are good enough. And in fact, they are barely able to do their job competently, right? And again, we still have to agree on what competently is. And that is where it gets sort of gray. 
and hard to talk about. But I think like if you want to do stuff as a hobby and release stuff and I mean, you can always sort of like if you have the curiosity to go back and look at your weird thing that you copy pasted out of a cookbook, you can actually learn things from that. I mean, a lot of us did. Experimentation is how a lot of us learn. It's just that you get a lot more out of it and you go a lot further if you have problem solving, if you have curiosity, if you have the thirst for knowledge. Like, it is shocking to me how many programmers I actually meet in the industry who do not have a thirst for knowledge or even mock people who are curious about various topics. And I'm like, how the fuck are you a programmer? You have to learn new shit all the time. It makes no sense to me, right? It's like a complete disconnect from what I expect a programmer to be. Maybe I just have ridiculously high standards. Yeah, and I I think what you did not prepare me for this episode is a bit part of that is I think I, at least I consider ours, myself and yourself to be passionate about what we do professionally. And sometimes it is hard when you have to work with people that what they do for work is what they do nine to five and then at five oh 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 one they just don't care about programming anymore because that's not what they're passionate about but programming is what uh, brings the dough to be passionate about something else right and that could create a lot of conflict but i think we're a bit going on a different tangent that i don't think you want to tackle uh, today but i think that's like i think that's what the feeling i get from what you've been describing for the last uh, five to ten minutes is we are passionate people about this topic and we have to interact and sometimes it's hard we have to interact that pe- with some other people that might not be as passionate as we are on this particular topic and that's life sadly yep and the fact that this show exists is proof of our passion for this topic because we talk about nerdy shit a lot on the show uh, I know, I know you might have a little bit more to add on this uh, particular point before we move on to the closing section of the show. So, do you want to add it in here? Uh, I don't think I do. That was point one, right? This is point number two. There's a third point, but it's very short. Oh, oh, okay. No, no, we can go to point number three. Okay, well, this is going to be a short episode, but there you go. Um, so I want to talk about Paul's example of something that would not have been possible on the iPad. Um, So I'm going to read a quote from the end of the article because I don't want to spoil the surprise. One of the most influential programmers in the world right now is Sebastian McKenzie. He started a project called 6 to 5 as a high schooler in a remote Australian town. 6 to 5, later renamed Babel, translates JavaScript with modern features and modern syntax into JavaScript that can run on older browsers. Nowadays, it's almost a given that any new JavaScript project will rely on Babel in some way. Millions of developers use McKenzie's code every day. Okay, so what what have we learned from this paragraph? Well, first of all, Babel has actively contributed to making web development less accessible to newcomers, which is exactly the thing that Paul was bragging about earlier in the post. And the reason for this is, until very recently, all you needed to be a to learn how to develop JavaScript at the same level that everybody else develops JavaScript is a text editor and a web browser. Unfortunately, what ended up happening is that people started taking JavaScript seriously as a programming language, question mark, and decided, oh, we need to make new versions of JavaScript that have so much more new sick features in it. And then they forgot that 
browsers are fucking stupid and <laughs> oh my goodness. never update their JavaScript engines. This is not actually true, by the way. Okay, but originally, they didn't update their JavaScript engines. Uh, however, now we live in this glorious new world where every browser except for Safari auto-updates. Uh, come on, Safari, get with the program. Uh, and generally, they try to keep up quite well with the JavaScript standards, but you can't actually write uh, ECMAScript 6, as it's called, and expect it to actually run in a sane way in a browser anymore. You basically always have to cross-compile into... Uh, well, you either have to package stuff as ECMAScript 6 that runs all at once, and you have to deal with the nightmare that is ECMAScript 6 modules, which isn't even really a real thing. Uh, and I know I'm saying a bunch of bullshit words that nobody understands right now, which is exactly the point. It's that JavaScript development has become ridiculously complicated because of this unfortunate tool that was released. And I think it would actually have been better if Sebastian McKenzie had been using an iPad so he couldn't have written this and ruined all of our jobs. <laughs> oh my goodness. And the irony of this is if Babel and Node.js hadn't become ubiquitous plagues in the world of JavaScript development, we would still be able to develop web applications entirely on the iPad. But now we can't because these tools exist and don't exist on the iPad because it's not a full Unix system. So now... Instead of being able to do web development on the iPad, we are able to do practically no kind of development on the iPad. Thanks, Sebastian McKenzie. I hope he listens wow. to this. It feels really, really bad for ruining wow. JavaScript for everyone. Seriously, I, I, I really don't know how to follow up this whole section. This is maybe the most juvenile episode of the show we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and remember the the, the small uh, the small caption that Yannick said at part of uh, just before part one, like uh, that I don't. Uh, <laughs> that this is I, not I'm representative not... of everybody's opinions. <laughs> yes, and it's, only uh, yeah, that's mine. good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So uh, I think this comment also applies to that statement. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, qu quick mention about that part of the article, if you because you went uh, into uh, really deep with it, but. Um, I was like, uh, who's that guy? It's like, oh, he's well known. I'm like, um, excuse me? I don't know that guy, but I guess it's my uh, lack of uh, JavaScript background. Didn't you know is... JavaScript is the only important programming language in the world, and everyone who is developing in Swift is full of shit? Uh, then I'm full of shit. Mm. That's all I got for this week. Okay, maybe what I have to say. Some of my points I wanted to talk after reading this article is I think... What I understood and what I felt about the art that article was mainly that Paul's experience about maybe learning was mostly about the theoretical, the theoretical side, and and I think I f like this is something I felt too when I went through typical programming education in the Quebec education system that a lot of that stuff was really like you get the theory, you might have homeworks that are more practical but still be on the theoretical side and then you go in the real world and then have fun because you don't know what the real world is and i do feel that there might be a balance between going x like really on the other side that is like completely practical and we do have like education programs that are based on that aspect right the professional diplomas are really like you learn by doing stuff and that's how mechanics electrician like construction people that's the way they got taught in our education system 
So I do feel that for something like programming, there's different level of programmers that we need to be in the professional level. And by doing those types of different type of learning, we could have people that when they start learning it in our education system, they could learn it by just being doers at first. They might not know all of the small details about all of the Swift and JavaScript way to design the language and all. And myself included, like, I don't know how Swift is designed as a language. And you know what? Sometimes I just don't care about that because I understand Swift enough as a language and I don't need to understand how it got built. So I don't need to go on that super theoretical side to understand how to use it compared to other people. We need other people to build those abstraction layers and those people can learn the theory, then apply it by building new languages, by building new abstraction. And I think what's, I think, sometimes missing in the way programming is taught, either you have people that went to typical education system or we have a lot lot of people and I think we have a lot of friends that are this way that they just learn programming by themselves. And usually when they learn by themselves, it's mostly on this doing approach. And I think our education system, for programming purposes, they could learn about this doing approach to improve the way they teach solving skills, like problem solving skills by programming to people. Whether you're 15 years old and you're a teenager and starting to learn or even younger or like you're 50 and you want to learn what is this new shiny thing that is computers and programming. Can I present a counterexample from our own education? Sure. Okay, so you remember that we had a class that was technically supposed to be at algorithms where we were also learning C++. And in that class, we basically had no theoretical stuff to go from because the teacher didn't really seem to know what he was teaching. And he sort of (laughs) pointed us towards a website that had C++ written on it. And he said, like, go read this. And I'm not sure how he graded the assignments. I guess if it gave the right input-output series of stuff, like a unit test, he didn't really look at the code too much. Um, and I think, like, we heard the feedback from the rest of the people in our, in our class. People were very frustrated that they were not learning anything and they were basically being pushed to figure it out by themselves. And I think it can be a good thing to be forced to learn it by yourself because that is a skill that is very useful in programming on day-to-day because I have to do it every day. But there was a lot of resistance from people in our group with regards to that approach. And I feel like basically no matter what you do, you are going to get resistance because you're the education system and you are presumed to be the bad in general by the students. But I think like that is a notable counterexample that we saw a lot of people basically that was their falling off point from the program. Like we didn't see them the next semester. And I think maybe that is just the natural cutting off point where people fall off. Or if it was just like the frustration with that program, I don't know. But I thought it was an Um, interesting counterexample. Yeah, that's a good example because uh, at the university level, uh, algorithm were a big uh, like cutoff point for people um i would say that at the university i went to the uh algorithm part was really super mathematics so it was really not about programming algorithm so it's what it should have been (laughs) yes a little bit so that's why i'm giving you this example is it was really about but it all it was always deemed the artist class of the bachelor program 
Like that's like everybody knew that that's the artist class, and it was funny because a teacher was, I think it was like forty something, and he was retired from Microsoft and Google at the same time. Just to give you an idea, but the guy was so passionate about the algorithm, and that I think to me made the class. I think it was one of my favorite classes, and it was one of the artists. Yeah, in in general, when it's taught well, it's an amazing class. Like I've no, watched a couple on iTunes U, but. Not only that, but the teacher knew that it was the artist class, but also the most important one. Yeah, and that helps. So just just to give an, like a counter argument to your counter argument that certain topics can be pre- like t- taught differently, and I'm not talking about the way that like the teacher and the way the teacher teach those things, but more about like there's different types of people. I think if we get more flexibility to them, we'll get more diverse people in the system, and then more people will be able to learn programming and improve their problem solving skills by learning programming is that it yes it was it mm. so if you want to find all of the show notes for this episode because yeah i'm sure yannick will include some of uh, a lot of them you can go on our website at limitlesspossibility.net slash 87 if you want to look at all of our back catalog of episodes especially all of the episodes where Nick is bitching about stuff, you can go on limitlesspossibility.net. If you want to follow the latest news about the show, you can also follow the podcast on Twitter. And the podcast is at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find myself on Twitter talking about cars and sometimes programming at Lukonosh, that's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E and you can find Yannick at Sakurina, S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A and I don't guarantee any positive stuff on Yannick's Twitter account. <laughs> that's if it's still there. Maybe I switched to microblog. Oh my goodness. That's a joke. I'll still be on Twitter forever. <laughs> <laughs> See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.